We will look together at the psalm that we have sung not once but twice, which is Psalm 39. Psalm 39. Before we read, let me just put this question for our consideration. When the Lord Jesus, in his state of humiliation as a man on earth, read the Psalms, what went through his mind when he read, let's say, Psalm 39? What went through his mind? Did he think, well, this is interesting for David to have had these thoughts, these experiences, or it's interesting to think of those that I will save having these thoughts and these experiences? Or did he see himself in these psalms? That is really what uh, our interest in this study of the book of Psalms uh, amounts to. And so we want to see Christ here wherever he is. This is to the chief musician, even to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. I said, I will take heed to my ways that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. <clears throat> I was dumb with silence. I held my peace even from good and my sorrow was stirred. My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Then spake I with my tongue, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is, that I may know how frail I am. Behold, thou hast made my days as an handbreadth, and mine age is as nothing before thee. Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity. Selah. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. I was dumb. I opened not my mouth because thou didst it. Remove thy stroke away from me. I am consumed by the blow of thine hand. When thou with rebukes dost correct man for iniquity, thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Surely every man is vanity. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears. <clears throat> for I am a stranger with thee, <clears throat> and a sojourner, as all my fathers were. <clears throat> oh, spare me, that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. May the Lord bless the reading of this psalm to our hearts. And we 
Notice a name here in the title, Jeduthun. He was one of three chief musicians, or we might say choir masters. He's mentioned in 1 Chronicles 16.41. His name literally means praising. It's similar to the word Judah. It is a psalm of David. And I believe more and more as we study these psalms from this perspective that psalms like this did, in fact, inform the human mind of Christ concerning how he should think and speak and how he should trust in the Father in his state of humiliation as a man on earth. We know from the second chapter of Luke that he grew in favor with God. And the word favor there is literally the word grace. He grew in the grace of God. That's how Lo, he humbled himself to the point of growing in favor with God and man. He was no doubt a student of the Old Testament, was familiar with it, read it, learned from it. When he read these Psalms, surely he saw himself in them. May God give us eyes to see him here also. It begins, I said, I said, here is holy resolve and determination to do the will of the Father. I said, I will take heed to my ways. Here is determination to walk and talk holily and justly before God. What he goes ahead and mentions here is specifically concerning his words, his speech, that I sin not with my tongue. I will keep my mouth with a bridle while the wicked is before me. Did this psalm encourage and strengthen the human soul of our Savior throughout his ministry, and especially when he was on trial before wicked men. To me, the answer must be a resounding yes. We know that sinful men, wicked men, were continually listening to him following him around, listening for anything that he might say that they could use against him. Any misspoken word, they were listening ever so carefully. You know, sometimes you think his enemies were listening more carefully than his friends.
Let me give just an example or two of this. We read in the 11th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, As he said these things unto them, the scribes and the Pharisees began to urge him vehemently and to provoke him to speak of many things. Say something. Say say more. Laying wait for him and seeking to catch something out of his mouth that they might accuse him. In this sense, his enemies loved to listen to him. Because the more he talked, the more they thought that they had an opportunity to find some fault in what he was saying. And of course, this is right in the middle of his public ministry. You're familiar, of course, with the the scene there towards the very end, recorded in Mark chapter 12. Where it says that they sent unto him certain of the Pharisees and of the Herodians to catch him in his words. They never were able to catch him in his words. They had to misinterpret and falsely accuse him based upon their misinterpretations of his words. They finally came down to saying, why this man said that he would build our earthly temple building in three days. And of course, they did not understand his imagery. That he's not speaking of a building, he's speaking of his own body as a building. During the Jewish trial in particular, before Caiaphas, the priests and elders hurled all kinds of insults against him, brought false witnesses against him. And yet in the midst of all this, he kept his mouth with a bridle. He did not say anything for the longest. It says in Matthew 26 that he held his peace. Finally, when put under oath, he does say one thing, and they take that and use that as a basis to crucify him, where he simply affirms that he is the Son of God. Before Pilate, during the Roman part of the trial, he gave no answer to the accusations that the Jews brought against him before Pilate. says he answered nothing when he was accused of the chief priests and elders. Then said Pilate unto him, Hearest thou not how many things they witness against thee? And he answered him to never a word, not so much as a word, insomuch that the governor marveled greatly. When, he, when, when Pilate sent him to Herod, he didn't say a word to Herod. Not one syllable. He was before wicked men. And he did not sin with his tongue. He didn't curse them. He didn't revile them. He didn't threaten them. Those familiar words in Peter talk about that. Verse 2 continues on similarly. I was dumb with silence. 
I held my peace, even from good. This is something we saw even in the previous psalm in verses 13 and 14. I as a deaf man heard not, and I was as a dumb man that openeth not his mouth. Thus I was as a man that heareth not, and in whose mouth are no reproofs. He's like a sheep before his shearers, not saying a word, not bleating, making no defense, let alone any uh, threats. Here is our Lord in perfect self-control, self-discipline with his words. Let us seek this grace to guard our lips. James lays it out for us. He says, we all offend much in this matter. We, We sin with our lips so easily and so often. Here is our Lord Jesus, our supreme example always guarding his speech. Verse 2 concludes, My sorrow was stirred. His sorrow was increased as the suffering came closer and closer and was looming more and more over him. Nevertheless, he maintained his composure perfectly. Verse 3 goes on, My heart was hot within me. While I was musing, the fire burned. Jesus was the only one who understood fully what was going on in his own life. He's the only one who understood fully what was going on the night that he was arrested and put on trial. His heart was active. And he entered into mental anguish that only he could know. He felt the fire of divine wrath inwardly as the sins of his people were put upon him. He's fully conscious of why he came and Conscious of the weight of sin that he bore in our place. Though he, he was silent, he was not ignorant. Then he says, spake I with my tongue. He opened his mouth. And He opened his mouth not to speak to man, but to the Father in heaven. Lord, verse 4, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know how frail I am. This is the, the spirit and the prayer of Jesus Asking the Father in heaven to help him to keep perspective on all that was occurring. 
in those dreadful and difficult hours. Help me to know and remember why I am here and what my mission is and what the purpose of my life is. In the margin of your Bible, it may uh, give this translation, Lord, make me to know mine end and the measure of my days, what it is that I may know what time I have here. Our Lord Jesus was certainly time conscious. He was conscious that his life was swiftly coming to an end as a man on this earth in this state of humiliation. His focus all the way through his public ministry was on a certain hour and a certain day. And that hour had come. His hour of Suffering, his hour of death. He died at about the age of 34. In what we would think of as the prime of life. Just right at half of three score and ten. He was conscious of the brevity of his own life. Verse 5, Behold, thou hast made my days as an hand breadth, a very short span, and mine age is as nothing before thee. He goes on to say, Verily, every man at his best state is altogether vanity, lightness, a cloud. He speaks here of the frailty of human nature. Not only of his own, but of every person. Those under Adam's curse. And he, as the sin bearer, receiving the punishment of that curse, entering into death. Christ entered into our frailty and felt it personally. The fall has left everyone empty and lightweight. And our Lord observed this. And inasmuch as he was subject to death, he felt it in himself. And this verse concludes with Selah. This is something to pause and think on. We ought to pause and think on our own mortality. We are dying people. And in Christ... We find eternal life. Thank God. Verse 6. Surely every man walketh in a vain show. There's that word vain or vanity once again. The life of man on earth is empty. It passes like a vapor. It uh, is like a moth that just flies briefly and then is consumed, as verse 11 says. Every man walks in a vain show. Surely they are disquieted in vain. And that the disquieting there seems to be laboring and entering into difficulty 
and the challenges of labor and all of that is in vain. He heapeth up riches and knoweth not who shall gather them. They hoard riches in their emptiness and they soon die and those riches become the property of somebody else. And the cycle continues. That person holds them for a little while and then they die. If they haven't spent it all, then they pass it on to someone else and on and on it goes. You know, there's some, the wording here about vanity reminds us so much of the book of Ecclesiastes where David's lesser son, Solomon, says much the same thing as he looks at life on earth. They labor in vain, they heap up riches in vain, and they don't know what's going to happen to them after they die. In this verse, we also think of Judas Iscariot. Oh, he had an opportunity to heap up some riches, some silver coins, 30 to be exact, the reward for betraying Jesus into the hands of those who sought his life. Did Judas enjoy his newfound wealth even one day? Not for a day. Not for a moment. Judas went and killed himself and didn't know who gathered the coins, did he? He threw them down. He didn't care who gathered them up. Shows us that only Christ can satisfy us. Here's the emptiness and the wickedness of man. And now, Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in Thee. This is a fascinating prayer. Have you ever prayed like this? It's a question and immediately an answer. Now, Lord, what wait I for? What am I waiting for? What is my expectation? What is my hope? And the answer is my hope, my expectation is in thee. I'm hoping in you, O Lord. The son says to the father, I'm waiting on you. I'm looking to you. And again, this shows us how far our Lord humbled himself to be our savior. He humbled himself to the point of trusting in the Father in heaven for all things and for every moment. My hope is in thee. Verse 8, deliver me from all my transgressions. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. Well, as we've seen several times in previous Psalms, as our surety... As our substitute, he is charged with our sins as if they were his own. He assumes responsibility for them. He assumes our debt, which he agreed to pay. He calls it his. 
my transgressions and the deliverance that he prays for is that deliverance which came after he had fully paid our debt. He did not want to be delivered beforehand. He knew that he came to pay the price of our ransom and the deliverance is resurrection from the dead and to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Make me not the reproach of the foolish. This eighth verse is Gethsemane-like to me. He doesn't want to be the reproach of the foolish. Let this cup pass from me. But it was the cup which the Father handed to him. The cup of reproach. The cup of shame, mockery, scoffing and scorn. The cup of disgrace. The prayer of our Lord there in Gethsemane is a challenge to understand and comprehend and fit in with all that we know about our Savior. But I think as Martin Lloyd-Jones once said, if Jesus had not prayed the prayer in Gethsemane, we would no doubt question his humanity. Because any man, any human nature would naturally recoil from the death of the cross and especially knowing the spiritual dimension of it. If he had not thus prayed in Gethsemane, we would either doubt his humanity or perhaps we would think that the weight of sin that he bore and his suffering for it was not so great after all. But it was that great. And he prays that prayer. And so we see this this scene continuing. Verse 9, I was dumb, I opened not my mouth, because thou didst it. He knew that his suffering and death was appointed to him by the Father, so he patiently bore it. He quietly endured it. He put up no resistance. He obeyed perfectly every step of the way. Verse 10, remove thy stroke away from me, for I am consumed by the blow of thine hand or by the conflict, as the margin says, of thine hand. Again, it is knowing that it was the hand of the Father that was ultimately against him that was the most difficult part of his death. If it had just been the hands of wicked men, it wouldn't have been nearly as difficult. 
The deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice gave. And we have to see some parallel or some indication, some hint at the degree of the spiritual suffering by the degree of the physical suffering. When our sin was imputed to him, he suffered inwardly in a dimension that we can only uh, barely grasp and only partially comprehend at best. He longed for the suffering to be over, but not before the price had been paid. And when he knew that the suffering was over and that the price of our redemption had been paid, he could say it's finished. And he rejoiced to know that it was done. Verse 11, when thou with rebukes dost correct man for his iniquity, Thou makest his beauty to consume away like a moth. Our Lord Jesus felt his own frailty as a man as he endured the rebukes of the Father that came upon him because he bore our iniquities. Yes, his beauty consumed away like a moth. According to the prophet Isaiah, his appearance was marred in death in an extraordinary way. When we see him, there's no comeliness in him, no beauty in him that we should desire him, he goes on to say. His beauty consumed away. That heavenly countenance was pierced with thorns. Samuel Pierce commenting here says, His crown of thorns disfigured his royal brow. On his eyelids sat the shadow of death. His face was besmeared with blood and spittle. His whole body wounded, torn, and rent. He was emptied of all. And it was for the salvation of his people. And you note verse 11 concludes with the same words as verse 5. Surely every man is vanity, or at least similar words. Here it's mentioned yet again. Our Lord became a finite man. To save finite men. He felt our lightness, our emptiness, the brevity of life under the curse. And we should pause and consider this again. Selah, indeed. He became like us that he might save us. And so he prays, 
Continuing in verse 12, Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears. For I am a stranger with thee and a sojourner as all my fathers were. He pleads to be heard. He says, let my tears prompt your help. And he saw himself as a stranger and sojourner. Indeed, he was. And he mentions the fathers there. Mr. Pierce commenting here says he puts himself amongst his people and speaks as one of them. Again, what gracious condescension to identify with patriarchs and pilgrims on earth and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. This is how low he humbled himself. Finally, verse 13, O spare me that I may recover strength before I go hence and be no more. Perhaps this is best understood once again as a part of Gethsemane. Thoughts in his mind as he prayed there when the stress of becoming our sin bearer was overwhelming and he sweats the great drops of blood and it seems like that the the burden of our sins upon him was almost lethal to him at that moment. And he prays to be spared right there in Gethsemane. Spare me, Father, from a premature death here and now so that I may die the death of the cross that you have appointed me so that I might go hence and die on the hill that looks like a skull outside of Jerusalem. Success for Jesus was not to die in Gethsemane, overcome with grief, but to die on the cross according to God's purpose, according to the covenant of redemption, according to prophecy of the Old Testament. Success for him was dying the death of the cross and then being raised up from the dead. And what was the father's answer to this request to spare him there in Gethsemane? Luke twenty two forty three gives the answer, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. Strengthen me that I might go from this place and lay down my life. And the Father strengthened him indeed.
This is holy ground to me. Let us marvel in our great Savior.